Are you, or is someone that you know, affected by complex mental illness? There's a one in five chance that if you're in Australia, you've said yes. And if you said no, well, I'm here to tell you there is, uh, I can guarantee there is someone living in your life who is managing their complex mental illness to a point that they don't need to disclose to you or to anybody that it's even there. I am one of the incredibly fortunate people, and I consider myself incredibly fortunate, I recognise very much so that it's a privilege to have access to treatment, to support, ongoing treatment and support. And because I have that access through financial means and through location, that I have a rich, meaningful and fulfilling life and that life is something I can now expect and count on rather than when I was ill, literally have no hope of ever experiencing. Because for years, I did not think that was possible. Did not think it was ever going to happen. I know that I'm one of the fortunate few people who have a brain like mine and a life like mine. When people get diagnosed with a complex mental illness, they or their family or their loved ones or their colleagues who not only are dealing with the symptoms of that illness, thankfully many of those symptoms are treatable, they also deal with the stigma, which includes self-stigma. And that was definitely the case for me. Self-stigma was something that got in the way of me actually engaging in treatment, actually taking the meds I needed to take and ended up causing a lot more harm to me and people around me for quite a long time. Thankfully, really, truly powerful charities exist to help people who are stuck between needing help and getting help. Because it might seem like a simple step from the outside, but I am here to tell you it is a mighty chasm, one that is impossible to cross for many, many people. And that was certainly the case with me. One of those charities, in fact, the oldest charity in the country that does this work is Sane Australia. For three years, I very proudly sat on the board at Sane Australia under the previous CEO. And while I am no longer a director, I, I no longer sit at the board, I am proudly an ambassador for Sane Australia. Today, we are going to hear from one of the most inspiring women you're ever going to meet, the current. CEO of Sane Australia, Rachel Green. She's an absolute weapon. Uh, someone I, I just can't wait for you to meet. She's so inspiring. Before we do, we're going to play some ads. Thank you for being with the idea that there are ads on this show because I pay the people that work with me here and uh, without them, there's no show. So thanks for understanding that we're running a business here and we'll be back in a moment with Rachel. 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the most powerful things a psychologist ever said to me was, if you're so good at predicting the future, Rachel Green, why don't you tell me the lottery numbers? And I was like, oh. And she sort of just, just, it was just one of those moments it's like, it's true, I can't actually predict the future. I mean, I'm pretty good at guessing where things might go. And that was at a point when I was sure that I was never going to find a relationship, I was going to be alone forever, and just completely wrong. And that's the definition of anxiety, right, is spending all your time worrying about things that probably won't happen and the, and the changes that do happen, and, and that applies to the hope, right, the good things that will happen. You can't possibly predict the amazing stuff that's, that's 10 years down the track. And it might end up looking completely different and, and be okay with that. But hang on to that hope and be prepared for all the good surprises as well. That was CEO of SANE Australia, Rachel Green. And this is Osher Ginsburg, Better Than Yesterday. G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being part of the show. This is a show that's here to make your day today better than yesterday. Really, that's all we're here to do. Something that you're going to hear on this show, and in fact, every show is going to do that. Because by having conversations with people since 2013, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we're making it better than yesterday. Does what it says on the box, this show. That's pretty much it. There's hundreds of episodes. Happy scrolling. Happy digging. Enjoy. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a TV host. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a plastic recycler, uh, outsourcer, booker. I'm an electric motorbike charger. And I think today I'm going to ride my bicycle to The Masked Singer, which I'm very excited about. (laughs) It's fun. It's kind of always fun to ride a bicycle into a massive, humongous, multi-million dollar production and just like, ding, 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 park my bike by the front door. It's pretty fun. Uh, Speaking of TV stuff, I have been nominated for a Gold Logie here in Australia. If you're listening to this in a couple of years, you'll know how this turned out. If you're listening to this overseas, it's essentially our BAFTA, our Emmy, our whatever for television. And my peers... So the television industry themselves decided which seven people who are currently working on television belong in that category, and then they put it to the public to vote to decide who gets it. Now, I'm going to talk more about this on Friday. I'm, I'm, there's a lot to talk about, too much to put here. So I am going to talk a bit more about it on Friday. But if, if this sounds like something you feel you could get behind, if you'd like to show some support for the work that I do and help me amplify the work that I do here, 
beyond the this podcast because there are squillions of people who see the work I do on television and have no idea that 10 years worth of these kind of conversations exist. And I would love to have more people hear this stuff because it can't be what you can't see. So if you'd like to help me get this stuff, this podcast stuff, this, you know, you and I both know this is, this is me, the other stuff, you know, I don't get paid to do this. My job is to either whisper or scream on those shows. This job, this is me. All right. And so if you'd like to help other people hear this part, and if this show has been helpful to you and you'd like, you know, to help other people be helped, vote tvweeklokies.com.au. I believe the link's in the show notes. So get Andy to pop it in there. But I'll talk more about it on Friday. Let me tell you about my guest today. Rachel Green has been CEO of Sane Australia since 2021. She's magnificent. She's a mother of three. She's got a long and celebrated career in government policy which is something that, you know, I don't know if I have the stomach for, but uh, she's spent years, years in policy there in um, like a never-ending episode of Utopia. Uh, But particularly she worked as a part of the National Mental Health Commission. She's also done very important work at the Black Dog Institute's Lifespan Project and uh, more recently was CEO of Independent Community Living Australia, which is a place that does what it says on the box. Rachel comes to her role as CEO of SANE Australia with not only a huge amount of knowledge on the workings of our public health system and how to get things over the line and making sure the rubber meets the road when it comes to policy delivery and, and service delivery to people who really need it. But she also comes to the role with her own experience, which she's open about. Say in Australia is a charity that I'm very, very proud to support. They do excellent, excellent work for people with recurring, persistent or complex mental health issues and trauma and for their families, for their friends and for their communities. The forums that are at sane.org are absolutely excellent. There's something about not feeling alone when you are dealing with a problem like this. If you or your father or mother or wife or son or husband or uncle or cousin or work colleague is diagnosed with something, you can feel a bit lost and feel suddenly very lonely. And if you pop on those forums, you can find it's extraordinary. It's truly extraordinary. It is old school. You know, it's kind of like old school net forums, but it's, it's, it's marvelous. It's a, it's a format that works a lot for this kind of support. And it's wonderful. It's truly wonderful. Sane.org is where you can support Sane and also get on board with those forums. Now content warning, because, you know, You need to know that this is coming today because that's what the show's about. Before we kick off, you know, we do talk about a lot of aspects of of suicide and suicidality. So before we get into that, if you're in Australia and this conversation does bring up anything for you, 13 11 14 to talk to Lifeline, call your GP, call your doctor, wherever you're in the world, be smart and um, take some control of the situation and get help if you need it. I really hope you enjoy getting to know Rachel Green. How do you do today, Rachel? You Okay. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I've just come from um, the uh, preschool Mother's Day morning tea. Um, it's like cake and little tiny chairs and busy drink. Yeah, it's a nice Delightful. way to start the day. Well, that'll give you an idea of when we were recording this. Uh, it won't, we won't release it too far after recording, but it's nice to have those moments. As is, That is the good thing about having kids in daycare and kids in school as a father. They generally start coming home with the Mother's Day things about two weeks out. <laughs> Get a good little reminder. And you go, oh, fuck, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, when I was a teenager or whatever or, you know, in my 20s, (laughs) what do you mean? Why are we we going to lunch with mum on Sunday? Like, I just saw her. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, that thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We uh, we are associated with the same uh, the same charity, Sane Australia. I used to be on the board at Sane Australia under the previous CEO Jack, and you came pretty much just after I um, I left. And I'm I am now a what am I an ambassador? I think that's my role. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I'm an ambassador, an all star. Uh, wow, I don't know about that, but I'm I'm really grateful to you know the number of years that I spent on the board at, at Sane. It was my first board role, and I'm I'm on another board now, which is nice. But it, you know, it really opened my eyes to not only how governance worked, how corporate corporate governance worked, how nonprofit governance worked, mm. gave me a real like squeegee my eye open with this is how slow policy change happens mm. when people don't want to change policy, like how when you're trying to convince people. And it also really opened my eye to the um, the numbers of people in Australia that are dealing with complex mental illness. Um, you've had a long uh, career in not only policy, but also government departments and a lot of nonprofits. What was it about coming to Sane that was the the move for you? Because at the time you could have gone anywhere, you know. What was it about going to Sane that was like, yes, that's where I'm going, that's why I'm going? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. You know, I, I, I was a hard no on Sane right up until I signed the contract. When I was first approached about the role, I was running a small Sydney-based um, uh, disability housing mental health provider and it was my first CEO gig and I'd done kind of just over two, two and a half years of really hard yakka through the pandemic in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. So where where the first outbreak happened, like there was a, there were days we were driving from pharmacy to pharmacy trying to trying to buy individual masks for staff. Um, and I'd, I'd renovated all these houses. We'd gotten 40 houses, like flipped over. People were in better homes. We'd set up new services. And I was, I was just hitting this point of I've got trust and buy-in. I'm 30 minutes from home. This job has become manageable. I've done the big turnover. I definitely don't want to change roles. And I got approached about Sane and, um, you know, just kind of went on the journey, thought it would be interesting to learn about where Sane was going. And at each step of the interview process, actually, they had um, Egon Zender, who are, uh, it turns out, very globally well-known um, recruitment firm, but I hadn't heard of them. I said to my husband, this people with a funny name? And they would ask me, the woman who was doing the recruitment would ask me about myself and just kept catching me on days when I was in a bit of a truth-telling mode and so I do these big downloads about my past history in my life and my experience and what drives me and I would walk away thinking gee well it's, they're definitely not going to consider me with everything I've shared about everything I've done and you know but I, it started to pique my interest but really it was a newspaper article I was down in Canberra visiting my mum and there was a headline that said um, and you know I guess a trigger warning to, to listeners um, it said body found by the river may have been there for six months and I read it and thought that'll be one of us, you know, that'll be someone um, from our our community, and and the picture next to it was yeah. this good-looking young guy, like good-looking. Um. The guy, the guy would have maybe ten years ago, sidled up to at a party, and 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 his story was was every story, you know. The, the yeah. I read through to the coronial report and how he just had this sort of you know classic, fairly rapid um, progression from age seventeen to um, not able to stay in work struggling with his mental health, he hits the mental health system, it doesn't respond very well, it doesn't help his family, uh, he, he's not eligible for the NDIS, and then he ends up dying um, just by sort of misadventure. And I read it and I thought, gosh, that you look at that timeline 
And the system is coming in here right at the very end with this big, big yeah. gun intervention like the NDIS that he's not even yet eligible for. And that point of intervention where we could have made change was 12, 15, 17. Wow. And the whole system is backwards. And I thought, you know, you think about the cancers where if you get a big cancer, we throw everything at you. We throw, you know, chemo and surgery with the exception of some where you don't do that. But generally it's going hard, make change, be comprehensive. Mm. And the mental health system is completely the reverse of that. It says if you get a bit worse, you might eventually be eligible for a bit more help. And it's the most backwards right. thing that, that you could possibly do. And it was that, once that happened, once I read that story, I couldn't put it down because I started to formulate in my mind from a bunch of other roles where I'd done systems work. Well, what if we did do a comprehensive approach? What would it look like? And how would you track it? Yeah. And how would you manage it? And what and the idea, it's like it's like a virus. I couldn't put it down. And then um, sort of against my will, I was like, okay, I guess I'm changing jobs now and I'm going to go and do this thing. Well, look, we could do a whole hour on unpacking what you just said, <laughs> which I think is really well worth it as far as, you know, if we wanted to, but we'll see where it goes, about just changing the paradigm of how we treat mental health. If we treated cancer. Now, get stop me if I've got mm. this wrong. I just want to get it back to you. If we treated cancer the way we treated mental health. I've Yesterday, I went to my GP. Like, I'm literally going to hold up. You won't see anything, but I, I've got that, that many referrals and things because mm. I'm like a classic dumb Australian man. I've gone for one thing, anything else, and I've said seven things, yeah. you know, because I've, oh, about six months. Why didn't you come six months ago? Anyway, one of the things is, hmm, yeah, you're going to go to see a dermatologist about that. Yeah. So there's a thing, all right? There's a thing on my body. I grew up in Queensland. There's a thing on my body. And she goes, yeah, it looks like a bit of a BCC. We'll better sort that mm -hmm. out. Now, if I go up to the dermatologist and they lop it off me and they biopsy it and they go, oh, yeah, we can see some mutations. That's starting to metastasize. Oh, yeah. If it gets any worse, you might be eligible for some further treatment. Mm -hmm. Off you pop. Try and get a good walk in. Try and, you know, don't drink and use so much. And, you know, have you listened to this podcast about CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy? Off you go. And we would expect that people didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> like, it would be fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Just try not but to have cancer. Just try. try not. So this is, this is, I have got that right. So this is essentially the way that our public health system is approaching mental health. And I'm sure there are reasons why. And, you know, it has, you know, gone to the most on, like the fire department, goes to the most on-fire house mm. versus, you know, the, the little fire. They go to the one that's really out of control. So that in itself is absolutely bananas that the early – and I certainly saw this on my time on the board that the money – and it's, sorry to be capitalist about it, but when you're dealing with the public health system, you know, the money spent for a critical intervention that might involve hospitalization and housing and such, it's hundreds of thousands mm. of dollars versus – when the person, maybe 20 years prior, when some signal shows up, yeah. a, a smidgen of that could offset things. Now, I'm not, I'm, this is not hyperbole, right, Rachel? No, it, and it's particularly relevant around the social stuff. So, you know, there is a clinical element to which in, in, in therapeutic or clinical terms, you definitely don't want to over-treat. That could cause harm to someone if they had a, you know, an issue that's this big and you had them suddenly doing massive amounts of clinical treatment that, you know, there's a, there's a, there is a, a, a sensible test there. 
We don't go straight to electroshock. <laughs> we don't. But in the functional sense. Which is very useful and it works a lot. Yeah. It just also works a lot for screenwriters who want to put something <laughs> scary on the, sc- on the screen. It, but let me tell you, I've seen, I've sat in the chair. I've, my hands jumped around doing it. It's, it's okay. In, in, the, in the functional sense, though, that earlier, more intense intervention can play a big role. So if you just imagine even someone with no mental health issues needs to build functional skills, particularly through their teenage years. They need to learn how to make a plan and see it through. They need to know how to get a job, how to work out, how to get information on managing their taxes. Um, Schools don't teach all of that. And so particularly if you've grown up in a family environment where you haven't seen good role modelling or there just hasn't been much um, exposure to good functional skills, those are the things that are at risk if you get a mental health issue. So functional intervention, more time spent learning how to how to work your way through a, a task. You know, life's a bit of a mess, broken up with your girlfriend, can't clean your house, um, all these bills are due, can't quite work out how to manage the money. Those are all sort of standard daily living functional problems. So investing in that, I think, pays dividends kind of no matter who you are, and particularly for people with mental health issues. Investing in that early will prevent functional loss later on and particularly if you invest not just in the individual but also the people that are around them because these things interplay in a household it sort of stands to reason that if you've got one person with poor functional skills there's probably other people who would do with some support and vice versa if you've got one person who's really really struggling and everyone else is trying to maintain function going going to work going to school making meals cleaning up after yourself the impact of someone who's really struggling on the rest of the household can be significant. But that doesn't exist. The thing I'm describing, that certainly the skill sets exist, like social work, occupational therapy, daily living support, they're all programs and work types. But there's nothing right now, if you're a family and you've got a you know, 15-year-old or an 8-year-old or a 17-year-old or a 24-year-old who's starting to show that you know, there, there are challenges there, you can't kind of request that. You can't go to your GP and say, can you sign me up for some intensive family functional psychosocial support it may be available in 20 30 years time if everything Mm. declines enough that you make it into either the acute system or the ndis system and it's just bonkers because the benefits of it could be so powerful now there are people listening who might just going what do you mean complete a task what do you mean you know clean your house what do you mean like do the dishes uh and i guess in the same way that when I tell people I'm an alcoholic and they say, well, just don't have a drink, I'm like, ah, yes, that makes perfect sense. You're thinking that with your brain. you got to understand. Like what you just described, there was a time, and it was right before I got caught, like unbelievably luckily got caught by the public health system up in Brisbane. There was a time when those things I was completely incapable of doing. Like uh, it would be toast for days at a time Mm. because the very idea of trying to put rice on was too much. I couldn't do it. I would freeze. I wasn't able to do it. I I, I didn't know how to deal with anything that wasn't just simply right in front of me. And it was, uh, and and I got really, really lucky because they caught me right at a point when that was going to start to turn a bit of a corner, I think. But there are, like, this is a, this is a thing that people may not understand that their, their brains are different and some brains have, and some families just don't have those kind of skills that many other people take for granted. And so it's very difficult if you're making judgments on them with your background and your family structure and your skill set. You know, it's it's why can't why can't you do that? I can do that. Surely you can just do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where you know stigma breeds 
but really what we're talking about is neurodiversity and right, you know right yeah. across the um, full spectrum of every every type of you know neurodiversity and 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 you know sort of cognitive ability people will have different skill sets and different strengths i mean i can i can i feel pretty comfortable in the strategy space and in the vision space cannot pack a bag <laughs> like you should see me if i have to do work travel there's a there's a lot of sitting down there's occasionally some crying um, because trying to think it through and overthink it and then and each each sort of decision um, getting stuck on that and then it turns into actually there's 50 other things I want to think about. My brain's going over there. It's, you know, it's classic ADHD problem, but it, yeah, that, but, and, and, and that can be writ large across your life, especially if you build in, you know, depression where not only struggling with a sort of cognitive load, but that willingness, that motivation is gone. I actually think it's something that we're going to see, um, you know, it's, it's going to be more of a factor for more people, I think, because living in modern society is becoming increasingly, you know, the cognitive load's going up. You know, it's not get up at 5am, go out and work in the field, come back. It's manage complex interactions, complex systems and reminders and follow-ups and things you've got to do, whether you're working or parenting or trying to study. Uh, that yeah. load and on the more brain. data and more more data and more input than we have ever, 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 have. ever had before. Our brilliantly our ancestors created agriculture and brilliantly figured out how to make surplus. And so we were no longer just eating the things we walked past. We were able to grow things and therefore have a bit of time in our hands. But that's pretty much where our brains and bodies stopped developing. Mm. Physically, we are exactly the same as we were a couple hundred thousand years ago. Nothing has changed. And so our brains are only at that capacity of like, this is about as much as we can think about. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, in one by it's where I'm recording this and it's 10 to noon on a Wednesday morning, I reckon today alone I have ingested more written words, visuals, pictures, recorded sound than someone even 50 years ago would have to fucking sit down and take a week off (laughs) the amount of data that I have input into my body since I got up this morning. And that in itself is something that we is not going to get smaller and it's something we need to be mindful of that our brain does have there's a limit to how much we get the beach spinny beach ball if you're on a Mac or a blue screen if you're on Windows. We get the spinny beach ball. Yep. We start working. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I read a thread this morning on Twitter talking about um, open AI and chat GPT and it was someone saying they'd observed that of all of the, you know, everyone's using it, everyone's testing it. Um, the thing that people seem to be doing the most is getting it to do writing for them because people, they were sort of speculating that people hate writing even more than they hate doing maths. And so they were talking about, it, it turned into this discussion about, you know, right now, you know, we get all these public health messages, we've got to go to the gym because our daily life doesn't involve as much activity as it used to. Are we looking at a future of mind gyms? We have to go and deliberately yeah. read things and write things because it's it's been removed from your daily um, life, which I thought was quite interesting. And, and are we likely to have the same attitude to going to the mind gym and reading the <laughs> reading the quick brown fox um, maybe, as we do to go to the gym? Maybe. I, I often make that analogy. It's like you don't accidentally keep a six-pack throughout the year. Mm. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of work, and you've got to think about it all the time. So similarly, you don't accidentally have good mental health, especially if you've been through an episode like on, I certainly have. If you've been lived through times of very you know poor mental health, it takes work to stay on the good side of that mm. every day. And that's okay. It's a part of my day, but it doesn't happen. Doesn't happen accidentally. I just want to just go back for a second there, because I, I know I started going to see psychiatrists when I was like five. Sometimes these things show up in, and they eventually grow up into your twenties to be 
depression. Sometimes they become anxiety and both of those things mostly uh, are treatable. One in three people who have depression are non-responsive non, uh, to treatment. What kind of, kind of things with the daily living stuff that we were talking about before, like something that eventually shows up as schizophrenia or something, which in young men often happens in, in 20s, like mm. how would those things make that life be be a little better if you started to put those interventions in earlier? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, um, one of the things I, I love doing, I love being able to do at saying is talk to the many people who are ambassadors and board members who actually live with schizophrenia and hear them talk about how they manage it and where intervention's been helpful for them. And I guess to understand it, if you're not familiar with schizophrenia, it's a condition where people experience what are called uh, positive and negative symptoms, which don't mean good and bad. Positive meaning a thing is happening and negative meaning a thing has gone away. So the positive symptoms can be um, experiences of uh, auditory, visual um, hallucinations and beliefs, and the negative symptoms is sort of loss of affect, loss of um, uh, motivation and things like that. And so um, for some people it's a combination of therapies and medication. For some people it's functional stuff. One thing I've always found I've, like that I've heard quite consistently from people living with schizophrenia, it's the support system around them and also what, you know, our good friend Janet Ma would call contributing life, like feeling like you're doing something valuable. I think also that a big part of um, intervening early is avoiding the loss of functional skills, so staying connected. And it's it's interesting because there's probably some parallels with what we're being told about dementia um, and how hearing loss can impact that. So later in life, if your hearing starts to go, you'll be having less conversations and doing less listening, and that can exacerbate um, a tendency towards dementia. And it, it, it sort of plays out, um, can play out similarly for complex mental health issues, particularly something like schizophrenia, because if you're, let's say you're, you're hearing things, you're seeing things, you're experiencing the world quite differently, that can be quite frightening. For some people, particularly younger people, that might mean they're turning to drugs and alcohol to cope with that. And so what's happening is they're starting to, to present differently in the world, they're withdrawing from it. And the more that that withdrawing happens, the less they're practicing and engaging and, and just keeping those functional skills going. So a really early uh, intervention would be about um, regular social interaction and people who are going to play that role of coach or buddy or peer worker or support person or counsellor um, and a mix of those and working with family members on how to provide that support whilst also helping someone continue to feel independent. Like it's a, it's a fairly complex sort of thing to get right and it needs to be tailored to the individual person, but it's absolutely you know, it's all within reach. That's, I think, what what frustrates me at times, which I spend a lot of my time driven by rage. It's not rocket science. <laughs> you know, and it, it ends up, like you said earlier, like, no, let's get capitalists about it. It comes down to dollars and cents. Like, have we put the dollars in the right place to pay for the people who do those jobs to go and do them in the right place at the right time? And the answer is is still no. I always get stuck on that um you know, the IT say, have you tried turning it off and on again? And every time I see a budget announcement, I think, have you tried funding it properly? Because what you'll never hear is there were 100 people who had a need and we funded all 100 of them to get the thing. Um, there's a lot of bamboozling you with a million, 200 million, a billion. And, but, you know, anytime you see those figures, just like just divide it by the number of people who are living with um, whatever that thing is. You know, we know there's at least 650,000 Australians with complex mental health issues and then times like, times that by about four or five around them, the family and friends. We're talking about five million people. There's two things I'd like to talk about there. It's, it's probably helpful if we do. Uh, the, the difference between 
complex mental health issues uh, and not being mentally well. Mm. Everything's on a spectrum. You know, day becomes night. It's never fully daytime. It's never fully nighttime, right? So there's everyone's brains on a spectrum and it can vary throughout the day. But on the, the complex level, let's talk about numbers for a sec. I think this is kind of important to talk about. In Australia, uh, what are the numbers? You mentioned 650,000 Australians live with complex mental health issues. Now, this is people who are live day to day uh, and manage these things as a part of their daily life. Mm. How does that compare to the people that, oh, they go through a breakup, they lose a boyfriend or girlfriend, they lose a job, they lose a child. Um, they have a they, you know period of depression or anxiety or, or mental unwellness, but then they get you know, then they get better. What are the numbers like compared to that? And like, what's the like of the really, really, really sick people who end up not being able to actually be out in in, in society? What, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Yeah, look, relative to people who experience sort of any type of general mental health issue, on any given year, it's one in five. So, it, you know, super common to be experiencing poor mental health and possibly higher than that. Um, one of the things that happens as, you know, we continue to do more awareness campaigns and talk about mental health, there's more people start to reveal and talk about it. And I think we've certainly, you know, seen signs of that happening during the pandemic. At the complex end, and complex is a tricky term for us. I mean, we use it because it is a point of difference at saying one of my bugbears is there are a lot of, there's a lot of funding and a lot of organisations that work in the more sort of mild to moderate end and then just draw a line for people who have ongoing mental illnesses. And sometimes I find that the messages around that, particularly in the workplace mental health space, can be really othering. There's a lot of keep the well people well, and the subtext is keep the mad people out. But at the at the more complex end where you might have an ongoing diagnosed mental health issue or set of mental health issues or mental health issues and other things like drug and alcohol issues, family violence, we don't actually know the exact numbers. And I think that that to me is still quite a shocking fact. So there was a national survey in 2007. I'm going to go data nerd for a second. You've got to let me because my, it's my thing, it's my special special thing, 2007 National Survey, and tied to that was a thing called the SHIP, the Survey of High Impact Psychosis, and it counted people by finding them in the hospital system who were living with things like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, borderline personality. And over the over the decades since, we've redone the National Survey and then we just left off complex. So we don't actually know right, right now how many people in Australia are impacted by uh, high impact psychosis or complex mental health issues, and I think that's quite shocking. It's just one of those um, things that fell off the policy agenda uh, in the mm. in the intervening years, and so it means that uh, we're undercounted, um, and then and that flows on. Then coming back to your point earlier about seeing the insides of the how the sausage gets made from a policy and an advocacy point of view, categorically, services aren't being planned based on accurate numbers. So are we funding it properly? No. And that, that's one of the things that I, you know, I'm really hoping to be able to change and it's why yeah. we focus so heavily on data and digital at the same. And that's like to, to draw an analogue to that, it would be we do a census to count how many kids there are and where they mm. are so we can build schools in the right places. I live in a part of the city where one of the high schools got closed because there wasn't high school kids living nearby anymore. Mm. They're trying to reopen it because it turns out they're we do need it. But, um, you know, there are schools that used to be pumping and now they're not. It's just how suburbs change. It's fine. And now there's a school three Ks further west or east, depending on what side of the city you live on, that now it's just, just heaving. And so similarly, like we wouldn't accept that with our education system. Why mm. Why should we accept that with our, with our health system? And understanding that the likelihood that anyone, including you, will deal with a mental health issue in some, some time in your life, it's 50-50, isn't it? It is, and I think it's often a real shock to people when they first interact with the system. Um, 
like, you know, I, I meet a lot of families and meet a lot of mums in particular um, and the ones who are newer to, you know, they're supporting a family member who's, you know, begun to have or had escalating mental health issues and the the, the sort of disbelief, shock and anger that they, they share consistently. At how, how can it be like this? How can it be that they just sent us away with a note saying, sorry, we won't see you, don't forget to go see a GP? How can it be that no one called us back? How can it be that the doctors don't talk to each other? How can it be that there's no service in my region. You talk about something like eating disorders. Maybe about 10 years ago, there was some announcement. It was This was a figure, $4 million, uh, hun- you know, doubling of the number of eating disorder specialist beds. And the doubling of the number was that it went from like two to four. Yeah. I was like, cool. How many people need the beds just out of curiosity? Like, is someone yeah. going to ask that question? And so for people who are just having their first interaction with it, it's a huge shock. And yeah. uh, I guess the reason I talk about the data is hoping to at least kind of explain to people why that is. How can that be? Well, it's because we're not actually counting us yet. There's a sort of an adage of saying what gets measured gets done. And and that's where the data can be really powerful is standing up and being counted and saying, actually, you know, forget the labels. We all matter here. Um, I mean, that's where the tag, the new tagline for saying comes from, where people like you, because literally where people like you means you're welcome here, but it also means with people like you, damn it, and we deserve all of the same things. We deserve the same access to healthcare. It should be like any other condition. As a former board member, I'm extraordinarily happily happy that that tagline happened. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing is that SANE is one of, if not the oldest um, mental health charity in Australia, I think. Uh, the acronym originally was Schizophrenia, a national emergency, yeah. uh, which you know, even just saying the word schizophrenia, we've said it about four times now, people have probably got some flashes in their brains oh, about yeah. what that means. People see people see that image. They see the guy on the bus with his missing teeth and he's talking funny. Mm. And it's like, no, like, come and meet the families. It's someone's brother. It's that baby that you love that just grew up and then, uh, you know, had some challenges and needed help. It's it's husbands and it's, it's mums. Yeah. I, as you just mentioned, I had the absolute joy and privilege to sit next to, at those board meetings, uh, somebody who was uh, managing life and living an extraordinary life uh, with schizophrenia (laughs) and managing their schizophrenia. To say that I work in an office with people and some of those people have schizophrenia, people would, (laughs) pun intended, lose their minds. It's Uh, still shocking. It's still shocking to people. But, you know, what's the difference between someone who's, you know, well-managed, what's a life with schizophrenia like? It's a really um, live topic for me, how we talk about mental health issues in a way that both recognises how difficult life can be, um, particularly if you haven't got the support around you, but also don't present um, only sort of tales of woe because that just just decimates the hope that people might be having. I mean, when I one of the other things you asked today about taking on this job, um, I read this tile, a social media tile from a sane peer ambassador with a quote saying that, you know, when he was 17... He was told he'd never have a job and never go anywhere in life. And um, and Goodbye. I read it and I went and I thought, and I, I looked him up on LinkedIn and I said, me too. Because huh? the psychiatrist told my mum sometime when I was about, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, that, you know, she needed to manage her expectations for me. It was unlikely I'd ever get married or have a job and she just needed to really be prepared for that. Of course, my mum didn't tell me. Uh, my aunt told me after after, um, you know, like a sort of a late night staying up chatting one time. Have you found that doctor and gone, CEO, motherfucker, and three kids? <laughs> no, but I did tell that story at my wedding and I and I was like, so look at me now, also hot husband. So yeah, um, well. that was a big moment for me. But 
um, it's tricky because it can it can be extraordinarily hard. Like yeah. psychosis can mean people believe and respond to things that are not the reality that are, that that everyone else is seeing and that might mean they believe things about people they love that aren't true and so you can end up in a whole world of really complex stuff around you know someone is saying I'm being persecuted all these things are happening and so then the system might try and wrap around that person and take them away from their family and you've got to balance this line particularly with service providers of what's true and how do we support everyone and be inclusive? It's really, really complicated yeah. and it can be devastating for families. And I, I think it's really important we don't always, that we just present a balanced and real picture and not tell shiny stories. And one of the things that drives me um, pretty up the wall these days is the kind of coolifying of ADHD. So if I had it before, it was cool. But now it's like the Silicon Valley CEO thinks like, oh, I've got ADHD and I've got an app yeah. and everything's fine. I'm like, well, yeah, but it is. Sometimes yeah. you really struggle and actually... It's not that easy coping with sensory overwhelm when you've got kids and they make a lot of noise and they want things and it's there's all these inputs and there's you know 50,000 other inputs coming from work brain and actually trying to get those to like I find that I find that really difficult on a daily basis and I you know 15 year old me would watch this and think screw you you know as if you get what it's like so yeah it's a tricky thing to talk about and yeah. I, I suppose the thing we try and do at saying to resolve that is tell a lot of stories yeah and and a real mix to sort of present a real picture, but also, you know, push back on that hopelessness vibe because doctors shouldn't be saying that stuff to families. Well, I guess, look, at, you know, at the time to have some sort of empathy to the doctor, perhaps at the time that were the only outcomes that that doctor had seen mm. and was trying to be as kind as they possibly could be, whereas we know that's simply not the case. It's simply not the case. You are gratefully an anomaly, but there's probably three other kids they saw that day who went and their parents yeah. went, okay. I pictured Doc on ADHD. I heard a story about, um, you know, someone whose child got diagnosed at, I don't know, nine or 10. And they basically went, it's fine. I'll just throw him in TAFE and he can be a tradie. It's like, how dare you? How dare you decide this kid's outcomes in life? How dare you give up on that kid? No, 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 not at all. Not at all, not at all. So it, it is, you know, I, I understand where that, that stigma around that kind of stuff, but you can't be what you can't see, Rachel. And if that's the only thing that people have seen, then yeah. that's why would they expect anything else? Because they don't understand. And it's fine, um, but it's, it's, it's the education part around that. But just to go back to the schizophrenia thing for just a, for just a second, like the idea that at a workplace like Sane, completely okay to say, uh, oh, yeah, schizophrenia. Yeah, that one, that one, that one, that one. Like completely fine yeah. to look at an office and go, this person, this person, this person, this person. Yeah, when you look at the the stats, when you look at the numbers, the amount of people that are managing these kind of brains, I don't want to call it mental illness. I was, this is what your brain does. It's, good. it's nobody's fault. It just happens, mm. all right? In our society, it's so colossal that there's every chance your workplace too oh, yeah. <laughs> has got, there's people who are, you know, going through their lives, managing and having a, a wonderful life, contributing and getting joy and, and, and love and having great families and great careers at the same time as these things that are often used in screenwriting or in some other kind of popular culture or certainly in our language uh, as the scapegoat of all odd human behaviour. Yeah. 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 I, I, I remember I worked 
some years ago for an organization which will remain nameless and um i was i came in quite sort of wide-eyed and i was was really excited about you know bringing some lived experience concepts in and i said let's do a survey and we'll find out how many people have lived experience um, or have experience as a family member or carer and we did the survey and the stats were kind of what you'd expect It, it, it produced about one in five had a lived experience but the care figure was off the charts compared to national data it probably reflects the industry you see a lot of people in caring roles go and become mental health professionals. And then I sat down with um, the the person who was running HR and I said, you know, this is great. This means we can really start to talk about um, how that lived experience is valuable and maybe we could even look at position descriptions and job ads and talk about, um, you know, lived experience being a positive attribute or desirable. And they said, we don't want that. We don't want these people working here. I thought, oh, I hate to break it to you. Um, <laughs> we don't want people with mental health issues and I'm like mm, yeah sorry and I was at a conference recently Corporate Mental Health Australia and there's a lot of great stuff about um, you know trying to support well-being and, and policies and procedures and leave and things but the message I think still across most workplaces is please stay well and and yeah the subtext of that is please don't be unwell uh-huh. please, please don't come in so we're not yet uh, anywhere near the adjustment we need to be on um, workplaces and inclusion to where it'll feel like, you know, you could get a job and then mention during the onboarding process, by the way, I have borderline personality disorder. These are the adjustments I need. When I have performance meetings, it's helpful for me if they're like this or like that. Or, you know, I have um, schizophrenia and I take antipsychotics. That means in the mornings, mornings aren't good for me because they tend to make you quite groggy. Those conversations are still not ones that I think anyone is is ready to have workplaces either well-intentioned will overreact um, or employees won't feel safe to disclose. So, you know, the, the, the vision on the horizon, I think, is occlusion, inclusion and accessibility and adjustment and and really normalising that stuff. I have, I don't know if you know the brand Heaps Normal, but they did some alcohol-free beer. I love what they've done with, with branding non, you know, like no alcohol drinking as normal. It's Heaps Normal and I'm, I'm a huge fan. I keep hoping that they'll pick us for a partnership. But we need the same thing for mental health, um, particularly in a workplace context. That it's just, it's just not even a big deal anymore. That would be that would be the vision for me. I couldn't agree with you more. For when I speak about brains and different brains on stage, when I, I get sometimes I, I do corporate stuff, I, I go to go at pains to point out that you know different brains and brains that are diverse in their thinking. Uh, make connections that other brains don't and they come mm-hmm. up with extraordinary ideas and they're in, incredibly valuable. And some of the greatest breakthroughs we've ever had in our community and our society have been from brains that uh, there's evidence to show are neurodiverse or have other things going on. Uh, they're not neurotypical. And so to value those things and understand that to have those brains in your workplace is actually is actually quite an advantage. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And resilience too. Like through the pandemic, you know, hey, there's a big scary thing. It's really unknown and you're going to be stuck at home <laughs> looking at a computer screen. A lot of people with lived experience went, cool, we'll be right. <laughs> We're used it to was, coping with a it fair was no amount problem of for me. stress and worry and pressure and adversity and isolation. So like, yeah, uh-huh. was, and they just yeah. carried on. Um, I, I did, I did, I did. I, did, I, did, I had one moment, but I did kind of double down on everything else. Yeah. I doubled, I, I like yeah, I already had the strategies. I just school, I just turned the volume up on on yeah. the other strategies. You know. Yeah, compared to people who are like, no, I need to. You know, I'm social and I'm out there and I go out every night. It was a huge shock to them to suddenly yeah. be frightened and under pressure and the unknown and stuck at home. So that you know, it, the diversity lens is absolutely the right one. And there's a lot of you know research on that. 
in, in all different settings. If you look at boards yeah. and governance, diversity of thinking is it leads to better decisions. It leads to better yeah. management, and it just it applies at every level. Um, when we actually launched the new the new brand for Sane, which I don't know if you can see the t-shirt, but I've got the t-shirt on. Oh, lovely! We're going to get you a t-shirt. I'll be I'll be in one later today. You, you'll be in one later today. We're filming a thing um, later this afternoon. And we got a um, we got some support from U Media to put billboards in shopping centres, and we were doing the creative, we were working through it. So we come, people coming with cool, you know, we'll support you kind of taglines. And I said, what if we just wrote schizophrenia and see how people react? And, and everyone, everyone kind of thought, you know, there was this sort of reaction of, oh, that's going to, that's going to, is that going to bother people? And so we ended up, we did it. And the, the, the billboard said, we get schizophrenia. And it was a play on the tagline where people like you, where it had that double meaning of, you know, we get it. You, you're cool here, but also yeah. people, people get it. And um, one of the one of the moments that I loved was, you know, uh, uh, quite a few of our staff with the new T-shirts on went and took selfies next to the billboard. So they stood in a public place wearing a T-shirt that says "Sane" next to a, a glowing blue billboard that said schizophrenia. And then they posted it on social media. And that and that I think is really um, symbolic of the change we're hoping to make as an organisation is it's it's that heaps normal effect. You know, um, we're, we're, we're OK to stand stand next to this, to stand by it and. Um, that's been a really exciting moment. And the the as you have seen with a, you know a career in policy, just because something's a great idea doesn't mean that it's going to happen. Mm. You know immediately, political will and public will and public sentiment. It's lit, it's turning a cruise ship. You yeah. you got to go. You can't go too fast, otherwise people's drinks will spill. You slowly, <laughs> slowly, you got to you know you got to get people there. You know you got to get people around. And I understand why we have these ideas about complex mental illness when because you know, if someone who is untreated and has been untreated and in a, in an awfully terrifying, horrible state commits an act of violence, that is a very shiny news story, a very loud news story. And, you know, then you can go and speak to the neighbours and go, yeah, he was fucking weird, you know. You can get all that. But the likelihood of that actually happening is infinitesimal. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but yeah. it's, infin- it's infinitesimal. So many of those stories too are often really misleading. Like you'll hear, they're often presented as if it's causal. Um, oh, there's a mental health issue present and that's why this thing happened. And actually what is often happening as well is like, you know, toxic kind of attitudes to women and domestic violence. And those those might be co-occurring, completely unrelated to mental health issues, but the headlines get presented as, you know, it's that uh, news media tries to go with, is it, are they bad or mad? And um, the impact that has on people who are living with something, they're not going to go and tell their colleagues. They're not going to go and um, mm. seek help or want that to be written down somewhere on a record about them. Um, has a real, really um, a powerful negative effect against help seeking when that stuff hits the media. And it's, it's terribly sad. And as you say, the, um, the the statistics and the data, you know, just so clearly show you are far more likely to be a victim of violence if you have mental health issues. In fact, um, the suicide risk for people with um, some of the more complex and ongoing conditions uh, is about 10 times higher than the general population. Yet suicide prevention, um, when it's funded and when it happens, is, is almost never about people with complex mental health issues, people who experience what we might call chronic suicidality. Um, in fact, all of the best sort of training and evidence and programs out there are all about the the opposite of that, the one-off impulsive. And those can be effective, but they don't actually work for chronic suicidality. So again, it's this othering of, um, you know, we can do workplace mental health, not for you. We do suicide prevention, not for you. 
Um, and that, I suppose, is, you know, it's a big driver of what we're trying to change here at saying. So actually, we don't want to be quiet in the corner anymore. We want, no. you, you're going to start to design this stuff with us. And as you mentioned, you know, this is, uh, this is somebody's uh, brother, son, dad, mum, grandma, teacher, yeah. accountant, friend, boss, colleague. This is who we are. There's, there's, it cannot be understated the impact of something like Are You OK Day or Movember around creating the conversation and opening up the conversation around the a one-off a impulsive act of suicide, suicidality will take someone's father, mother, son, mm. daughter away just as much. Yeah. All right. So it's, it's by no means saying that is any less worthy. Yet it is safer for us to look that direction mm. and say, uh, are you okay? Because I can ask you, I could probably have a conversation with you, but I'm afraid to ask if you're okay. Yeah. Because the people who are not okay a lot of the time, they don't get asked. Yeah. And I, 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 I don't know if it's it's what the thing, what you're describing the chronic suicidality, but I I remember there being like maybe a year and a half of feeling like that mm. every day, it's twenty times a day, and nobody talks about it. I I mean I I I have lived with that myself for years, and it's not the kind of thing where um, you know, and it's sort of it might it might cycle up and down a bit but it's always yeah. there and it, it's not the kind of thing you can you know, people are like are you okay oh no actually this is what i'm thinking about right now because that you're going to get this intense reaction that's going to be yeah. you know in all, all likelihood traumatizing and not helpful at all and so people keep it to themselves and the system doesn't know how to respond it only knows how to send you to the ed that's the end in that's the end yeah. of, of stage of all the training prog programs and interventions that are out there is Check if they're suicidal. Be comfortable. That's, you know, that's a good message for your listeners. If you're worried about someone, you can safely say, hey, Osha, are you feeling suicidal? And you can answer the question. And people will most likely, even if they are feeling suicidal, they'll feel relieved. They'll be like, oh, yeah, yes, actually, I'd like and to And they'll answer you truthfully. I have, that yeah. is, I can state that. I have asked that question to people myself. It is sounds like a confronting question to ask, but it is the most relieving question you can be asked when you're in that state. They'll answer you truthfully. Yeah, the next step in all those programs is then, great, get them to the ED. And the ED is just not it's Emergency not department, up. we're talking it, like. Yeah, yeah, it's not set up for that. And um, no. it, most likely you'll get sent home again with a note to go and see a GP and that's where the whole system <laughs> Jesus Christ. I was lucky enough to make a, a documentary with the people at Loon Media. We made a documentary for SBS about suicide prevention. And uh, Toby... Ralph, the extraordinary cameraman, he made Fight for Planet A and War and Waste. Like, he's an extraordinary cameraman, beautiful guy, really sweet man. He made all the Todd Sampson stuff. Like, he's the man you want with you when the shit's going down. He's an incredible guy. And we were at this extraordinary place just across the road from Blacktown Hospital. It's a suburban house because just, just even getting into hospital is such an overwhelming thing. The intake process is so overwhelming. People won't do it. This is just a suburban house. They had a kitchen. They make you a cup of tea. They sit you down. They ask what's going on and then, you know, can take you through that process and essentially then walk you across the road. And Toby, as we are walking away, packing up, the packing up the camera van, he said, hospitals only have a blood and guts door. <laughs> yeah. They don't have a, That's oh, you're not blood and guts, but you're just as much of an emergency. Okay, so this room that's full of very bright lights and people literally bleeding from their head who will be seen well, well, well before you, and they'll keep walking in, so you'll probably have to sit there for five hours. This room's not for you. There's a room around the corner for you. It's yeah. far nicer, than, way less intense, and we'll be able to take care of you here. Yeah. And I was like, he's a very, he's a, he thinks a lot, this guy, but it's not rocket surgery. 
You right. know, it's it seems to be such a simple, and it's it's never simple when you say that. Certainly, when it comes to policy and health policy, um, but it, it seems like it's such a demarcation between this person's in no less danger, but you can't <laughs> just then send them home. Yeah, and the, and the, the, you know there are there are great emerging designs for those, and there's been some good investment. I had the privilege of being able to set up a couple of them during the pandemic, and as challenging as it was trying to do anything during that period, uh, when I got to read the outcomes um, and the the sort of findings from the qualitative interviews, and every single you know I, in a previous role I set up a um, suicide prevention and recovery cottage where people just got to come and stay for four or five days. There wasn't a lot of premise to it. It was just a nice house with comfy beds and some people you could talk to. And people called it life-changing because it was just a place to go where you felt safe and it was a bit of a break from your day-to-day. It was clean. You could have some conversations, do a bit of journaling and go home again. And they called it life-changing. And, and for all of the challenges of doing it, reading that was it's so powerful. I guess where we try and play a role in that now from Sane's perspective, because we're a digital org, is it just a different piece of that puzzle? Because there's, there is some growth in the policy and investment in what are called either safe spaces or overnight stay or, or what are called prevention recovery centres in Victoria. The piece missing for me is still no one is checking whether you got there or not. Um, and so that's the role we try to play as an organisation. We call it our bridging the gap strategy. And so because we're digital, we're all about applying what is essentially retail technology. So the analogy I like to use is shoe shopping. <laughs> You go online and you find a pair of shoes. You're like, should I buy them? You're like, mm, maybe I shouldn't spend that much money on shoes. And you don't buy them and you walk away. And but your cart still has the Louboutins cart, in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to get an email the next day, Rachel Green, maybe you do want these boots. Did you forget? How about an extra discount? We really miss you. And the messaging is all very come back. You know, you're a valued customer. Yeah. And the health system doesn't do that at all. We're using more technology in online shoe shopping than we are in mental health and follow-up. So... That's I've got that. a 90-day trial and a CRM that I could give them an offer code for. Yeah. <laughs> it gives me a year free. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that and that's literally what we're doing now. So we've designed yeah. the way we work um, completely differently. We've designed it around the person so that yeah. everyone who has, you know, who's a participant in our kind of digital community um, in eligible regions gets a like a, I think of it like a passport, but you know, it's a place to to make a plan and you can mm. make a plan with our peer workers and counselors and you can add in information from your GP and if you go to a hospital you can update it there. And we're working on the sort of technical connections so that we can apply almost like a contact tracing QR code. Yeah. Uh, methodology so that wherever someone shows up in the system, I want to see a ping on the system so that we can ring up and go, hey, Osha, we saw that you were in the hospital this weekend. How are you doing? Um, d- did you get Amazing. a next step? Where are you meant to go? And you'll say, oh, I got told to go and see my GP. I'm like, cool. Do you have a GP? You know, have you booked that in? I think that is a really critical role that no one's played yet. And that's what I, I, I that's what brings me to work every day. I'm so excited about it. We're still, we're still building all the bits of it, but that's kind of the vision. That's extraordinary. And what a great idea and what a great implementation of uh, technology is, you know, hacking our brains uh, <laughs> to, to act on impulse and do things that we might, oh, no, maybe not, but then, oh, okay, okay I will. Yeah. You know, it's just really very, very clever. Just a moment away there from Rachel Green to uh, just, you know, remind you, if, if you'd like more people to hear this kind of stuff, uh, you could either share the show. I mean, you could share the show with somebody. Just send it, uh, let them know, tell somebody. And uh, vote at tvweeklogies.com.au. I'll put the link in the show notes. But if you kind of help me, because I've made a very conscious decision that, you know, from here out, this kind of stuff, this kind of thing that I do here on this podcast, that is 
Like basically anytime I open my mouth when I'm not on a show that I, you know, I'm either being paid to whisper or scream for, this is the kind of thing I do. And I would like to do this more at a higher level because I feel these kind of conversations need to be further and more importantly profiled in our community. So if you'd like to help these kind of conversations get out there to help our community, uh, I don't know, kind of get a bit more normal normalcy, normality around this kind of stuff, tvweeklogies.com.au. There you go. I have to play some commercials because uh, I work with some really wonderful people that help me make this show and they deserve the money they get paid. But that money doesn't come out of nowhere. So here's some ads. We're back in a moment with more from Rachel. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You've got young kids. I've got, you know, an older teenager and a young kid. What's your message for parents? What's your message for parents of children if they're worried their child might grow up and develop a complex, their beautiful cherubic-like child may yeah. one day be diagnosed with a complex mental illness versus she's, you should manage her expectations. What would your message be instead? That's such an important question and I'm going to really try not to get too emotional about it. I mean, I'd love to say do this or do that or um, here's what's out there for you. But the true answer is I'm, I'm, I'm working on it as fast as I can. We don't do enough to support um, parents who are in that position of thinking something's happening or something's happened. Like you can't, you can't always prevent a trauma from occurring. And when that happens to your six-year-old kid and suddenly they're talking about suicide and you can't get help, like that is, there's no more real situation. And it, it's tricky for me um, becoming a parent and knowing what I know, knowing how, how life can turn out, particularly for boys, you know, that they're at this much higher risk of um, suicide rates if they, you know, if they struggle particularly in their teens and 20s, is sort of watching it all um, unfold. And and we don't have good systems of support. And one of the things that, that you know, we're, we're going to build but we're still working on is that sort of network between parents and carers to sort of share ideas. But, um, uh, yeah, I would say, you know, your GP is probably still your most consistent form of support and it's worth spending the time if you can and the dollars if you can to find one that that does get to know your family because they are the navigators of the system more than any other health profession that's they're, they're the sort of spidey knowledge of um if we do this and if we do that package and we can come here we can go there and you can get that so i would say lean into that gp relationship it's probably your best bet in trying things and then when they don't work going back and trying something else but it is it is really hard and i think that's what 
it, that might be where people's minds change. Like if you grow up not knowing much about mental health and you have that, you know, that guy on the bus stigma idea and then you become a parent and you think, oh, what if something happened to my kid? What if my kid was someone with mental health issues? It, that really changes the dynamic, I think, for for everyone when they hit that stride. Also because parenting is really, really hard. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's really but that's hard. that's okay. You don't know what yeah, you're doing. That's and, okay. and it's 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 um it's intense and it's amazing and you don't want to stuff it up and I suppose it I don't know, enhances or focuses my lens mm. on this stuff because more and more I see that picture of for all the young kids out there that are struggling that are that are not, you know, I talk with other mums about this where they've got a kid in their family who's eight years old and struggling and um, not no not access not accessing the NDIS, not eligible, but really, really struggling and therefore the whole family's struggling and they're mm. spending thirty thousand a year out of pocket on trying to get help because they know where it can go, how it can lead to disengaging yeah. from school disadvantage. So mental health is the most important thing. So be prepared to be flexible on the other stuff, like um, try different things, get help, get into sport. I'm a soccer mum now. I have no idea what's going on. Constantly just five minutes late to all the games and the training and have to sort of find someone who knows about soccer and get them to explain to me what's happening. But, it, you know, it's great social skills and, um, uh, you know, team building stuff for my son. So I'm, I'm there with the coffee at, <laughs> uh, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 in the morning. Um, so, but, you know, be prepared to try new things yourself I, as well, I would say. And as far as expectations for your kid or your friends or, you know, your relationship, if a diagnosis comes along? Yeah, know that you can grow through it and that life will throw at you the most random different things. So even when you're in the, you're in the pits of despair and worry, even when you're just so sure that it's bad, it's always been bad. I mean, high intellect goes with poor mental health, unfortunately. So you're in the pits of despair and you're pretty smart and you, you, just so convinced that it's always going to be like this. One of the most powerful things a psychologist ever said to me was, if you're so good at predicting the future, Rachel Green, why don't you tell me the lottery numbers? And I was like, oh. And she sort of just, just it was just one of those moments. It's like, it's true. I can't actually predict the future. I mean, I'm pretty good at guessing where things might go. And that was at a point when I was sure that I was never going to find a relationship. I was going to be alone forever and just completely wrong. And that's the definition of anxiety, right? Is spending all your time worrying about things that probably won't happen and the, and the changes that do happen and and that applies to the hope right the good things that will happen you can't possibly predict the amazing stuff that's that's 10 years down the track and it might end up looking completely different and and be okay with that but always hang on to that hope uh, there are so many people I've met who just who will tell that same story that you know the things they thought would happen versus where they ended up and what they're doing now uh, Sandy Jeffs who's one of our sane founders took you know OAM and plays soccer and writes books and travels around and a keynote speaker. And that's not what she would have thought or what her parents would have thought when she was first diagnosed with schizophrenia. So hang on to that hope and be prepared for all the good surprises as well. What would you say to people who, and this is the trick that our brains play on us, that it's only happening to me. I'm the only person that deals with this. You don't know what it's like. No one knows what it's like to look after someone who's dealing with this. Oh yeah, totally. I was that person. Um, I always have this idea about one day doing a talk and um, finding one of the photos of me with dreadlocks and, uh, you know, dawn clothes and um, periods, you know, just you, you wouldn't have picked it. You wouldn't have known. I used to talk with, uh, to um, Janet Meyer, our patron, about this because um, at the time when I was, a, particularly when things were really bad as a teenager, um, 
I would see, you know, some of the people who are sort of celebrities who would talk about mental health and I'd be like, yeah, right, as if you know you probably have assistance and someone cleans your house and everyone does anything for you. And I was, you know, struggling to string two baked beans together and, um, you know, struggling socially. And, and, and you wouldn't have picked me back then. So I would say if you're, you know, feeling like you're the only one going through it, you kind of can't tell people that it's different to the reality that they experience. But I would say just keep trying and and hold on and breathe through it. And, and as much as possible, try and connect with other people who are like you and have conversations. You know, we're a place for that. You can you can talk to us on saying the forums are there 24-7 and hands down there'll be someone on there that actually is a lot like you. And um, I can't kind of uh, overstate how powerful that is when you connect with someone else and actually... Um, have that shared experience being able to speak to another person i can explain what um paranoid delusions are like i can explain what psycho i can even less even less than that i can try to explain to someone what alcoholism's like and what that's is like and they'll be like oh yeah, uh, yeah but if i sit down there and i look at another you know another one of, yeah. another one of my mates from the super secret sober club within two sentences they're like yeah i gotcha yeah mm-hmm. And instantly I feel like, ah, oh, ah, oh, there you go. I see you, you see me, we're here. Yeah. And it is kind of interesting. It's a trick our brain plays on us that we're the only one going through this mm. and no one is never going to get any better. It's never going to change. Like th- the actual fact, and I can tell this, like cause it's proven, no mental state is a permanent state. And every problem that you have has already been solved by somebody else. Yeah. All right. And just you find the right combinations that be particular to you, all the solutions are there. And there's no way I would be alive right now, Rachel, had I not had a team of people who went this way, mate, this way. Come on. Okay. Oh, mate. Okay. You fell back a bit there. This way, buddy. And trusting those people, mm. that's the, for me, that was a pathway out. I know so I was very lucky and then I got to get out of that space. I'm, you know, I still have a management, I'm in a management phase and I will be for the rest of my life. That's fine. I understand that not everyone gets to be out of where I was, but um, life can be so much better by A, understanding you're not by yourself, you're not alone, other people are just like you, connecting with people who are just like you and understanding that, you know what, other people's ideas might actually serve me here. Mm. I might see what they, I might try something else. And that's the other thing you said, which I really, I really hit upon. Someone asked me this the other day. Uh, people ask me about, you know, their kids now. <laughs> they used to ask about their friends now, ask about their kids. <laughs> and I said, I think I lost count at six different versions of um, medication combinations. Mm. I stopped counting after six, you know, but I just had, I just had to keep trying. I couldn't, I could not accept, I couldn't be with the idea that this is what it was going to be like. Mm. And I was very grateful that I had a psychiatrist who was like, okay, let's try something else. And it took a while. It took years to get it right. But I just kept, kept going, kept mm. trying, kept, I'm still trying. We just did a, a new adjustment just the other day. Yeah. That is, a, that's such an important message um, for you to be sharing because people think of it like, oh, I have this, I have the, what's the thing you're allowed antibiotics for? I can never remember. Yeah. I have this condition. I'll get an antibiotic. It'll be better. You'll know the right yeah. one. You'll give it to me. I'll take it. Bing, bang, boom. Uh, mental health is not like that. And no. I sometimes think of it as a charm bracelet. Like I've collected a few diagnoses over the years. Maybe eventually I'll collect some more. Um, but it, the, the, what works for it, 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 you have to try different things and adjust. Yeah. And if the person you're seeing, like if you're going along to see someone years and years and you don't know why you're going, you don't feel like it's getting any better. Well, like you can change. Yeah. You can try someone else. 
you can ask okay. them. You can go along and say, yeah. hey, I'd really like to know what sort of therapies do you practice and are they indicated for my condition and when will I expect to see some benefit and what will that benefit look like? And you yeah. might find that health professionals are a bit shocked by that. They're not really used to self-advocating no, like consumers. But nope. all of that stuff you can do and also know that you'll change too. You will yeah. age. You will grow. And um, what you and therefore what you need might change and um, sometimes in, in really positive ways. There's... Um, there can be effect, particularly with some of the most complex mental health issues where things do just hit a point over a certain um, age if you can make it that long um, where where what you need is quite different and it just in different stages of life. Like there's something about hitting your 40s and you just care less about the small stuff. Really? <laughs> it just yeah. It's yeah. just what it is. Um, and, 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 you know, and having, uh, if you are lucky, if you're, you know, if you choose to, and if, if kids do come into your life, whether they be stepkids or, or, or other, that brings its own set of joys and challenges yeah. and something you m- thought you might've gotten past. Now something else shows up. You're like, Oh, crikey. Yeah. All right. Back to work. Better get back in there because <laughs> now something else is showing. And that's yeah, fine. So that's oh, life. That's, that's what it is. This is the thing that I really loved about when I first got asked to join and be a part of SANE. It was the idea that um, skilling people up and even just what we just talked about, about advocating for yourself, you know, understanding that you are uh, valuable and worthy mm. and here's some ways that you can speak to your people who are treating you about your outcomes. And it's not to say that, like, I am not a mental health professional. And never, nor do I claim to be one. Yes. I have a disclaimer at the bottom. paid for the ski the holidays of many but I am not one yet. And I don't think I'm smarter than them, but I know when our work together isn't getting either of us any further down the Mm. track and I'm able to go, I need a bit more out of this, but it seems like we've done three or four, you know, months here and I'm not breaking through anywhere. I would like to see if something else can work. Well, even if you don't know, you're a person and you have a right to ask questions. This is true. You're important. (laughs) Who <laughs> thought? Uh, that took me a while to get to that, mm. trust me. <laughs> but the other thing I, I do love about saying is, as we mentioned before, is connecting you with other people who are of a similar, you know, kind yeah. of band on that spectrum and have similar experiences and make just the feeling of being less alone is so important. Mm. And being able to then see people who were where you were and are somewhere you might like to be one day is absolutely vital. Yeah. Because when I'm, when I'm in that state, I don't know. I can't tell. I'm in hopelessness. I'm like, there's. Ne- it's never going to be any different. Mm. And it's, it is, as you mentioned before, is connecting th- with people. And that's one of the things I really love about what Sane does is it is that community of people who come together to understand that that is extraordinarily helpful, was helpful for them, and they want to give it to somebody else. And that's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, our forum members are amazing. There's something like almost 40,000 people on the Sane forums. It's 24-7. You can start your own gardening club. You can talk about what you're experiencing. You can ask people for help. You can just share how you're feeling. Um, they're a remarkable community and um, it's really it's actually it's a real honor and a privilege to be a part of it i'm so grateful you you found your place there and i'm uh, i'm i'm grateful as well i'm not gonna lie that sometimes you're driven by rage because <laughs> you know that's yes. a it's sometimes it's a useful motivator that's the punk rock musician bit of me it's just so you still still want to like get out of the guitar and turn up the distortion and break the system down. So uh, I think that's um, it's a bit that lives on. I am here for, I am here for the punk rock generation ascending to positions of power. I am all for it. Generation X uh, is in charge. You are all about it. Have a fantastic day, Rachel. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Sasha. It was so great to speak with you. 
that was Rachel Green. She's the CEO of Sane Australia. And they are, if you get in quick before June 30, there's a quite a fantastic campaign going on on their website where your donations are, are matched in a fairly significant way. And um, yeah, they're a proper registered charity, so all donations are tax deductible. So get in there, sane.org. Honestly, like I worked there for three years on the board and any like it, donations of a dollar make a difference. Like that, that is the difference between someone being able to staff a helpline and not. And um, someone being on the other end of the phone in those moments when, you know, it's a parent calling about their child or someone in, in a lot of trouble. Abs- that's life-saving stuff. Life-saving stuff. If you would like to help uh, this show out, please, if this show over the years has brought you value, please, you know. Tell a friend, tell someone, post an episode on your media feeds, whatever it is you do. If you'd like to help me raise the profile of these kind of conversations in this country, you can vote tvweeklogies.com.au. I would love to be able to use that profile of that moment to get some awareness out there about the kind of conversations we have here and the things that we talk about on this show. Because I made this show because I felt these conversations were missing in our community. And um, to a large extent, in the mainstream, they still are. And I would very much like to change that. And you can help. tvweeklogies.com.au I'll talk more about all this on Friday. I'm still processing a lot of it. I'm busy, very busy, gratefully, shooting Masked Singer at the moment, which is tons of fun. But on Friday, I'm going to... I've got a few things I'd like to talk about with the Logies nomination, because it's a lot. But um, we are back here on Wednesday to uh, revisit the time we spent with Georgia Love. But uh, between now and then, uh, have a fantastic day. Enjoy whatever it is. If it's sunny, enjoy the sun. If it's rainy, enjoy the cosy. It's winter here. If it's summer where you are, tickety-boo. Sun's out, guns out. Buns, guns, whatever. (laughs) Thanks, Andy, for producing this episode. Thanks, Rachel Barrett, on the executive production. I'll see you Wednesday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.